This message by Sam Shin, entitled "The Goal of the Christian Life, Part Two," was recorded at Wellspring Church on October 13, 2019. The text for this message is 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Yes, the reading of God's words. Please stand with me as we read from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. Which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Please be seated. As I shared last week, we saw that John had two reasons to write this letter,、um, two goals, you might say, not just for the letter, but for our life as a Christian. The first was to proclaim the gospel. Second, to have fellowship with us, the Father and the Son, and today we're going to talk about the last goal that John had in writing this letter, and it really is going to be what you must keep at the forefront of your mind as we go throughout this letter, and it's that our joy may be complete. And I'd like to examine this goal by looking at both the positive and the negative, because if John is writing this letter to state. That the goal of this letter is that we might have complete joy. Then it's safe to conclude that joy, as of right now, is not always so complete. That it is a struggle to have joy, and I think experientially we can agree to that. We can attest to that. That having complete, abounding joy all the time is not necessarily something we always have with us. And so we need to answer the question then. Why is this so? When John is saying that to follow Christ ultimately is to have complete joy, why do we not have complete joy? We're going to look at this answer by first examining the character of complete joy, or the character of joy, the cause of joylessness, and our commitment to joy. So first, let's look at the character of joy, and it's really asking the question: What does joy look like? There are so many characteristics of joy. I mean, that's the challenge of a sermon like this: is that it could be three hours long, actually, because underneath every section there are many, many characteristics. But obviously, we're not going to take three hours to do this, so I'm only going to focus on literally two. And the first character of joy that I want to look at is satisfaction. Joy has the character of satisfaction because. Joy, at least biblical joy, is meant to leave you completely satisfied. It's the default nature of joy. It doesn't mean joy does not mean comfort or ease, but rather it always talks about joy being satisfaction.、And、one passage of the Bible that gives us the command of joy is Psalm thirty-seven, verse four. It's really a key verse regarding joy that. So many, when they preach a sermon on joy, they specifically refer to this verse, and it says, "Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart." 
And that verse is a verse that shows us that joy leads to satisfaction. That when you delight yourself, when you enjoy God, he will satisfy you. He will give you the desires of your heart. But listening to that verse, you might think, okay, so what you're saying, according to that verse, it sounds like if I delight in God, I will get whatever I want. I'll always be happy. I'll always be satisfied. And that does, doesn't seem to match up with maybe our personal experience of what the Christian life is like. That is to say that you can be pursuing God and trying to um, be faithful to him, obey his commands, and yet difficulties still arise. So the question then becomes, I thought it was supposed to be delight yourself in the Lord and he's supposed to give you the desires of your heart. Why this disconnect? Why does this happen? Here's something that we fail to see in light of that verse, verse 4, is that this is what the rest of the psalm says. I'm only going to read to you a few verses. In verse 7 on of Psalm 37, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger. Fret not yourself. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. And the psalm just keeps on going like that. So you read the rest of the psalm, and that doesn't seem to then, again, match up with verse 4. Because if delight yourself in the Lord, he gives you the desires of your heart, and then suddenly you're struggling with people who are against you, that people are out there who are trying to deliberately hurt you or harm you, or when you're feeling this type of opposition and angst all around you, then the question is, how do you have joy in the midst of enemies who are trying to attack you, trying to undermine you and and wage war with their tongue or with their fists or with their pocketbooks against you. How do you have joy in light of that? The psalmist and the rest of the Bible really tells us then that joy is not directly linked to positive outcomes, nice circumstances, comfort. Many times, actually, quite the opposite. To be a pursuer of joy might lead to difficulty. God does want you to have complete joy. And John tells us this. He's not out there to stomp out your joy or to tell you that to be a Christian means to be morose, to be grave only and to be sad, to be frustrated. No, this verse tells us God wants you to have complete joy. But he believes that, John believes, and he's going to make this case throughout his letter and the Bible says this too, is that the problem is not that you do not have enough joy. It's that you don't pursue joy enough. It's actually that we settle for too little joy in our lives. And he believes that we're not satisfied enough. The problem is not that you desire joy too much. It's that you desire joy too little. One writer who really does a great job of commenting on this is C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. And some of you have heard this quote, but it is such a beautiful picture of this idea of not being satisfied enough, not pursuing joy enough. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition 
When infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. That's John's point, is that not that we pursue joy enough, it's that we pursue joy too little. We are not satisfied enough, we're satisfied too little. Regardless of the amount of what we have. And so Paul, in Philippians chapter 4 verse 12, says this, I have learned the secret of being content. And if you know anything about Paul's letter to the Philippians, it was written while Paul was in prison. And in that very letter, in that same chapter, verse 4 of chapter 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Contentment is an expression of joy. And so when Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content, of being joyful in any in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And Paul had both. He had plenty and want. He knew what it felt to be in the isolation of a cold prison cell, a Roman jail, which was quite different than our prisons today. And at the same time, he knew what it meant to be at the upper echelons of society, wealthy, prestigious, looked upon as someone who was educated, well thought out, admired. He knew both. Joy was not dependent on whether he had much or little. It was dependent on something very different or someone. That joy that is just inexhaustible is dependent on the only one who provides it, who is in himself inexhaustible. That's God. So what Paul is saying is that our circumstances change throughout our lives. If you look upon the circumstances of your life to actually get joy, you don't get it at all. But if you look upon the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, who is inexhaustible in his nature and in his joy, when you look upon him to find what only he can give, then your joy increases infinitely. I can't help but Think of, when I think of this idea of thinking of the care workers in Africa, again, we've said these stories many times, you've heard it, and you might be thinking, and I know that story, but for those of us who have gone, you know this to be true, is that those care workers in themselves are just as impoverished as the children, the orphans that they're caring for. They're church members, just like me and you. They go to church. They sing songs. And whenever we go, you're always struck by the beauty of their worship. It's not dependent on whether they have much or little. They could be sitting back because they are just as poor as those children. They have a hard time feeding their own children. And they could be sitting back wallowing away in self-pity and saying, Woe is me. I, I have nothing. God, you're no help to me. You're not satisfactory to me. But instead, they decide to trust in him. And with what little they have, they go and go to far off places to care for even the poorest child, to bring them into their home, to do whatever they can every day to visit them, to care for them without pay, without any pat on the back, just simply because they worship a God who is inexhaustible in his joy. That joy, and when I hear them sing, I think to myself, how can a woman 
who literally has nothing, sing with that type of joy and dance and laugh. Laughing from the heart isn't meant for someone like that if they don't have Christ. But when you have Christ, you do have everything. Even though experientially and existentially you have nothing. So satisfaction is an outgrowth, an expression of joy. When you're deeply satisfied, contentment. And that's the idea is that you're, you're battling worry by being satisfied in him. The second expression or characteristic of joy is power. Power is not something that you think of when you think of joy. But the Bible tells us that joy is a power. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, we went through Nehemiah, and this is what Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. You have to go back and remember the context of when Nehemiah said this. The people of Israel were trying to rebuild the wall. It was in tatters, the whole place, in, in, in just a rubble everywhere. And they were standing outside, and Ezra is reading the book of the law. It was essentially scripture, the Bible. He's reading the Bible out loud, and all the people are standing. And as they're standing, they're listening, and they start weeping because they think about the fact that they were exiled, they came back to rebuild, and this place is just miserable. They're in misery. And if you can imagine the weather, the rains, the cold, and they're going to a place where it was once this grand edifice, and now everything's destroyed. And so they're impoverished. Food is difficult. It would be easy to be in a place where you're depressed, sorrowful, pitiful. And so they start weeping, and... Isaiah, uh, Ezra is reading this, and Nehemiah declares, the joy of the Lord is your strength. These people were facing attacks on every side, physically, threats, rumors. There was a lot of discouragement going on amongst the people of Israel. And the task, as they looked around, just seemed so overwhelming that they started becoming disheartened. They felt as though what can we do? This is too big for us, too difficult. I don't think we're going to be able to overcome this. Fear started rippling throughout everybody because you hear about the rumors of if this band attacks us, we're doomed. We're just a bunch of farmers or just a, a bunch of people who really are not able to defend ourselves. We have women and children and it's going to be very difficult. And in the middle of that, again, those words, the joy of the Lord is your strength. How is joy strength? Because for Israel, circumstantially, everything had gone wrong. And at the crux of it all, the reason why circumstantially they were even in that place was their forefathers had determined that they were going to control their own lives, their own wealth, their own prosperity. And they're going to trust in themselves rather than God. And God said, you know what? If you go down that road, you will see what it's truly like when you trust only in yourself and not in me. And that led to all sorts of enemies and destruction, terrible things. With that comes fear, anxiety, troubles. And the only thing that can overcome that 
that drives away fear is joy. Joy in a God who is powerful, who is mighty, who does satisfy, who is the one you can turn to in times of trouble. And so fear is contagious. Fear and anxiety spreads, and it doesn't take much, just a word here, a word there, and suddenly the spread of fear, the contagion of fear. But just as contagious is joy. One person who says, you know what? We'll be okay. You know what? We worship a God who is magnificent, who is inexhaustible in joy, whom we can turn to and never be afraid, who we know, according to Scripture, that says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That he's a rock and a fortress and a deliverer and a strong tower. He's the sun and shield. He's the glory and the lifter of our head. All of these descriptors of God and the person who says, what can man do to me? I shall not fear. That person is just as contagious as the person who says, look, look at all around. We have no hope. Everyone's attacking. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we will die. You have two com competing worldviews. One says we're in control and everything around us is going to determine how we feel. The second one says God is in control and everything around us is under the control of God who is sovereign and Lord and King. And I, with him, as long as he's the, the mighty God whose wings overshadow me, I will not be afraid. That joy, that contentment, that trust, it counteracts fear. It refuses to let fear control you. And it fights anger and bitterness. And it will not yield despite the difficulty of circumstances. Circumstances, all that we face in our world, it is a, it is a power. But it is a power that is limited in its scope. There is a far greater power than that and is the power of God who is infinite in his power. Shared this story a, a while ago, but Tim Chester, who's an author, tells a story of two women, Dorothy and Naomi. There were two elderly, elderly women in his church, and they both had a lot of physical pain. Dorothy had a problem with her legs, and when you met her, she told you about her medical problems in detail. And I do know this to be true, but as people age, that is a common Common topic of conversation. All the pills they're taking. All the struggle that they have with their back and their, and it's endless really. Just comes with age. So Dorothy was like that. Whenever you met her, she always told you what she was, what all her problems were. And she was gloomy. She was fearful and she was depressed. And her conversation was about one theme, herself. When you met her, it was all about her. Naomi, same age, she had acute arthritis. Her fingers were uh, curled into fists. In the last months of her life, cancer ate away at her. She was in constant pain. Whenever you saw her, she was wincing with pain. But yet her eyes shone brightly, and in conversation, she always spoke about God's goodness. She always asked, in the midst of her wincing pain, how's your family doing? How are you doing? Two women, similar circumstances. With Dorothy, when you met her, it was all about her and how down she was. With Naomi, when you met her, it was always about 
How are you doing in the midst of her pain? You could see that for Naomi, truly, the joy of the Lord was her strength. It is a power. There is a determination in that joy. Do not mistake joy for weakness. Quite the opposite. Joy is a fight. Every moment of every day, as soon as you wake up, sometimes even before you wake up, you have dreams of all the worries of your life. And as soon as you arise, your eyes open. It is a fight for joy, a determination, a trust, an unwillingness to yield to anything but to God himself. So that's really the character of joy. Again, I could have listed off for you 20 different characteristics, so many. But those are two that I wanted to focus on. Here's the question then. What is the cause of joylessness then? What keeps us from joy? That joy that we just saw is so beautiful, so determined. The first is the enemy in the world. Satan is a great liar and he's a masquerader. He takes the pleasures that God has given to us in this world and he's made us think that actually those pleasures are equivalent to joy. That is to say that a pleasure, an item, a pursuit is what we need in order to get joy and satisfaction, power. But it's exactly untrue. Pleasure is something that God has gifted us with. There's nothing wrong with pleasure and happiness. But it is not an end of itself. The problem with pleasure, especially the pleasures of our world, is that they're always fleeting. They're momentary. They they come, and when we place our hope and our trust in it, that's when the scam comes in. It's a mirage, and John makes this so clear for us in 1 John 2.17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world's pleasures and desires, they're fading. There is no pleasure in this world that lasts eternally. Not fame, not academic success, not popularity with people, not wealth, not good looks. Nothing that actually gives us lasting joy. It just doesn't happen. You know, there's an intersection, sort of, and I, I was thinking about this, is that, if you, yeah, I'm, I've told you this many times, I'm not a math person, but I'm going to try to do a little math, or at least a little, not math, but thinking about it, from a chart, an X and Y axis, you might say. And on the, the, on one axis is desire. And on the other axis is control. And so, here's the thing is that the more you desire something, and the more that control, our desire for control act, actually increases, the greater joylessness you will have. Joylessness, another word for it is worry, discontentment. Fear, anxiety. So if you have desire for something and control, a desire to control it, you will get joylessness. That is, and the intersection of that, our greatest peak of it, is where we falter the most. So think of it this way. Whatever you treasure, it could be, I treasure my children. I love them so much. 
And if you try to control it, the more you try to control them by your protection, or as we're told today by the snowplow generation of parenting, where you just try to remove all the obstacles. If your kid does something wrong in school, the first thing you do is you email that teacher and say, hey, you're messing up my, my kid. They're awesome. They're so smart. They never misbehave. It must be you. And so if they get an F, the first thing you do, you email the teacher and say, hey, teacher, you must be a terrible teacher. That's sort of that idea of control. And so if we have desire for our children, protection, love, pursuit, and it's let me control their life as much as possible, wherever you get to that intersection, that's where joylessness is at its peak. Worry, anxiety. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's having the perfect marriage. Wherever that is, whatever that is in your life, worry is that indicator that says you are worshiping that thing. You are controlling it. You are unyielding in your desire to let it go unto the Lord. The enemy is absolutely at work to make you in that place, to lead you, to tempt you, to entice you down that road. The world also offers it as well. And our sinfulness gets in the way too. So there's a lot that is actually leading you down this path. But the question is, does it ever satisfy you in the end? So those parents who were caught in varsity blues, I mean, when you think about it, that's essentially the same thing. They're trying to control the lives of their own status, their own children's status, which actually is all about their status, and the greater the problems. Does it ever satisfy one furtive look at a computer screen? Does that satisfy really? The screaming at the person who cut you off on the road, does that deeply satisfy you and give you joy? Satan is so crafty. He makes us desire something or we have a desire for something. He increases that desire. And what he does do is say, don't trust God with it. You take control of it. Just like Adam and Eve. And suddenly we start thinking God's holding back on us. He's not really out for my joy. He's out for his own. And that's actually what we want. Yet we disbelieve it. We try to control it. And we falter and we grow in worry and struggle with fear. The second cause of joylessness is, according to John, is false teaching. This is a huge message in John. We will see this throughout. Because for John, joy has a source. The source is Jesus Christ. And the way we know that source is through his word. The truth of God's word that points to Christ is the only means of our joy. So whenever, if you, if you can divert, distort, disfigure truth, then you disfigure Christ. When you disfigure Christ, you lead people away and you actually rob them of ultimate joy. You place their hope in the world and all of its pleasures. It's, it's that cycle. And so joylessness flows out of false teaching. That is why the Bible is so central to our lives for joy. You might think to yourself, oh, when I read the Bible, I don't get anything out of it. That's exactly the enemy's scheme. It's not that we get nothing out of it. We just don't even want to fight for joy. We don't want to deter be determined in it. 
And the pursuit of it is everything. And so therefore, we find it in his word. And let me give you one example of this. The idea of legalism and licentiousness. Two really dastardly false doctrines that sap our joy. Both of them. Legalism and licentiousness. Both of those evil false doctrines flow out of false teaching. And let me give you an example. John says in 1 John 1.8, listen to what he says here. We'll go over this in much detail coming soon. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So clearly this is a verse that speaks of false doctrine, false teaching. And do you know, according to this verse, you can be both legalistic and licentious regarding this very verse? It's actually possible. Here's how. You can say that you have no sin or you're not as bad of a sinner as most other really bad sinners. I mean, that's the point of if we say we have no sin. So whether I could even say I have sin, but in my heart of hearts, I actually think I'm a pretty good person. Or again, I'm not as bad as that person over there or that person over there. That's the same as saying I have no sin. When you say I'm not as bad, you're essentially saying I have no sin. It's, it's, it's the same thing when you look at the text and you understand it. And so once we start putting into degrees the quality of our sin next to other people, guess what you start doing? You start judging people. You start looking around saying, that person sins like that. That person sins like that. They do this. They do that. They're a drug addict. They sin lustfully. They lie all the time. I don't do at least those things. And once we do that, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. That's called legalism. Only the truth of God's word guards us against that, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that no one is righteous, no, not one. But that same verse can also be taken to think that we have no sin and can sin as much as we want without consequence. That's licentiousness. Both have no truth. And tragically, we all fall into both areas of this evil false teaching. We rob Jesus of glory by trying to forego the power of the gospel. One says, other sins are terrible, mine are respectable. But why would Jesus have to die for us and face God's full wrath if he only has to die for nice sinners? And it just doesn't seem like Jesus would have to die on the cross for that. So the gospel would be unnecessary if he only dies for nice sinners. Then Jesus didn't have to die, and that nullifies the cross. Also, if I can do whatever I want without consequence, because Jesus has already forgiven me and died for me, then that makes mockery of the cross. Then the cross is nothing but a flippant thing, and I defame and blaspheme God. On top of this, the legalist is always struggling with joy. If you want to know why we struggle with joy so much, probably it's because of legalism. Because no one can live up to our standards, and I cannot live up to my own standards. And I start condemning myself and feeling guilty because I don't think really that Jesus did die enough for me. And also, if I do happen to keep my own standards, 
once in a while, then when someone else fails those standards, I judge them. And I say, you're evil, you're terrible. That's joylessness, always trying to figure out who's messing up, who's really bad. I'm really bad. I'm actually not that bad today. I'm pretty good. And that battle and struggle every day, over and over. Who is joyful in that? No one is joyful like that. That's joylessness. The licentious person thinks he can experience joy because he gets to do whatever he wants without consequence. I was reflecting on Proverbs 4.19, which says this, The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. The way of the wicked, the licentious person, the person who says, I can do whatever I want, God's not watching, it's not really sinning, or even to take it from a Christianly-like way is that, well, I've been saved, so therefore God has forgiven me, I can do whatever I want. That's the way of the wicked here, as Proverbs says. It's like deep darkness. And the second part really describes well what they are like. They do not know over what they stumble. Meaning, every person who sins without thinking about the consequence of it, regardless of whether it's intended or unintended, there's always a consequence. Lies hurt people and create deception. It destroys relationships. When you lie, you think, I got away with it. But you'll find that a liar always lies in every context, in every relationship, and it starts building. The person who is hiding a secret and is lying to pe one person or two people, guaranteed they're lying throughout their whole life. And relationships are being broken, whether they realize it or not. Sexual morality, the terrible nature of sexual morality, disease that destroys relationship. The husband who is addicted to pornography, the wife doesn't know. But suddenly, they're... they're satisfaction in something that does not satisfy ever, ever is going to lead to a brokenness in that relationship that they they can never understand. The wife won't even understand why this is happening. And maybe because she's not being loved in a certain way, she's looking elsewhere. And this whole corruption, all because the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not even know what they're stumbling in because all the stumbling is done in darkness. Greed creates waste and manipulation, deceptions and murders. The list is endless. So the point is this, is that when you are struggling with joy, sin is abounding through legalism and licentiousness. All sorts of sins, corruptions, hardened hearts, anxieties, they are filtering throughout your life, impacting not just you, but your loved ones, your relationships, the way you work, your visions, your, your ambitions, everything is impacted. Do not think that we are simply joyless for no reason. There's a lot happening in your life, whether you realize it or not. So what do we do? What hope is there? We must have a commitment for joy. There's a better way. We have to be committed to this. It is a willful decision to fight for joy, to seek it. And we see this in verse 4, actually verses 1 through 4. So... If you can remember everything that I spoke of last week and then think that verse 4 is also a just this goal, this pursuit. And we know a few characteristics about this joy, this commitment to joy in verse 4. First, that, that our joy may be full. 
The maybe is actually in the, he- uh, in the Hebrew and in the Greek, another word in the Greek, remain. It's constant remaining. There's a replenishing aspect to it. It's not that you get joy once and it's gone. It's that it constantly is filling over and over again. So you have to be saying, what John's saying is that you have to be intentionally perseverant in your fight for joy. And it's always based on the promises of God. That's why, again, Scripture is an essential part to your fight. If you cannot go back to God's Word and reflect on it and remember it and consider it, then you will not know how to be persistent and perseverant in joy. You have to remember, oh yeah, my fellowship is with Jesus. What did he do? What has he accomplished for me? John is saying that this is a never giving up joy. He wants to make it so clear that also God wants this for you. He's not holding back. He wants to fill you to overflowing, which leads to that next part, that our joy may be full. John doesn't say God wants you to be three quarters full of joy. He wants it to overflow. It's really taking a cup of water, taking a faucet, letting it run over and flooding over and over and over again. The joy that he wants for you is not just to fill it, but it's to overflow. And so what John is saying is that, and you'll see this throughout John, is the world promises its own definition and object of joy. Never will be satisfying. Not for eternally. Maybe not even for a moment. There is nothing in this world, really nothing, no relationship, nothing that can actually make you finally happy eternally, except for Jesus. He really is the only one. And so the promised pleasures of our world might feel good for the moment, but they always leave you lacking. John says that following Jesus promises complete satisfaction. And the answer then is, uh, the question is, how do you get this? What are are we looking at? And that's where last week's text comes into play. That which we have seen, which we heard and we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Joy is resounding. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. It's a connector between fellowship with Father, Son, that leads to our fellowship with one another, that leads to joy overflowing. This joy is impossible without fellowship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And when we have that, though, it unleashes joy amongst us. The rest of John's letter makes this point. Everything keeps you from that except for Jesus. And so your only hope is join Jesus. Jesus resolves every hindrance to our joy. He reconciles our broken relationships to the Father. He mends broken relationships with one another. He helps us to see rightly so that we're not overwhelmed by fear or anxiety. And he did the impossible. The means by which he does this is that he gave his own son, his own blood shed so that we might have life with him. First John 5.11 says this, And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. I absolutely believe that 
our greatest pursuit is God himself. The overflow of that is joy. If we are ever struggling with joy, it's because we have forgotten that Jesus Christ became our substitute, died on the cross for our sins, reconciled us to the Father. He took our place. He adopted us as sons and daughters by his shed blood into God's family. The songs that we sing every Sunday resounds of that truth. That's what binds us together. It's that alone. Nothing else. Nothing. Not a program. Not something we say or do. It is Christ alone. We are here solely on the basis of that shed blood. And so, therefore, if we believe that, if we trust that, if we know that, promises joy, eternal, forever and ever. And it will overflow. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you recognizing that our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. And your word tells us here in First John chapter 1 that you want our joy to be complete, to be made full, to overflow, to abound, to resound. You are not keeping that from us. You are not a God who is asking us to settle for less. Actually, quite the opposite. You're asking us to pursue more, to not be settled with so little, to stop making mud pies when there's a vacation at the sea right next to us. And so, Father, I pray that we would be like Christ, your son, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And Jesus, you did that with joy so that we could have joy in you so that we can trust you, so that we can be satisfied, so we can set free from sin and death and all of its power, so that we would no longer be afraid, so that we'd be freed from worry, so that we, you would help us to relinquish this pursuit that never satisfies. May this communion point us to that truth, O oh Lord, to recognize that it is through Jesus Christ, your own Son, that we have this joy abounding and abundant, that we can delight ourselves in the Lord. And your word does promise us, no matter the circumstances, that you will give us the desires of our heart because our heart will long for you. And thank you for your goodness and your love and your joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.